Welcome to the third and final podcast in the series, which explores the work of final year MA students studying fashion journalism, fashion histories and cultures, and fashion curation. My name's Amy Delahaye. I'm Professor of Dress History and Curatorship. My name is Judith Clark, and I'm Professor of Fashion and Museology at London College of Fashion, and together we're Joint Directors of the Research Centre for Fashion Curation. In this podcast, we're looking at alternative narratives that are created around dress, creating dramatically different perspectives from which to view our discipline. We look at, for example, a microanalysis of a fabric pocket containing clues to a woman's life and possessions, her mobility and independence. To the difference between national identity staged as a fashion exhibition and experienced on home soil. To the local calendar-driven and subversive world of folklore. Jessica Fletcher studied fashion cultures and histories and developed a detailed and wonderfully obsessive focus study on pockets in women's clothing from 1850 to 1920s. Denied access to material cultural analysis, of course, which means examining actual objects in fashion museum collections because of COVID, she looked for alternative primary evidence from magazines and other contemporaneous texts. Her detailed study provides fascinating insights into the placement, utility and security of integral pockets, as contrasted with using a handbag or belted chatelaine, for example, in the context of what became known as the new woman from the late 19th century onwards. We asked her about her experience prior to joining London College of Fashion. Well, my background is actually in theatre, not in fashion. So I came into it from a a costume uh, perspective. Uh, My BA was in fashion, was in uh, costume production. Um, So it was a very practical course. Um, And then I worked in, uh, I've worked in the West End for the last 10 years. Um, But I was always interested in in knowing more about the you know people would ask questions about sort of the costumes that they're wearing and I'd always enjoyed that kind of aspect of it when when I'd studied it in a tiny little bit of costume history in my BA um and uh, and really relished the opportunity to learn a bit more so I decided that the time had the time had come to uh to further my studies and go in a slightly different direction um which is how I ended up doing um uh history and, and cultures of fashion and how did you narrow it down to your particular area of interest well it was a topic that had always interested me um it was the subject of pockets was actually the um uh the topic that i used for my application um so we could kind of keep those um or or go in a completely different direction but they uh, this kind of little nub of a of a research question um or research idea uh just really stuck with me originally i wanted to do something or originally I'd approached it rather from a kind of a more contemporary perspective. Um, and it all kind of started with the, the meme of thanks, it has pockets. Um, and and people talking on social media about, about dresses with pockets and how exciting they were. And it's such a kind of mundane little everyday detail that you wouldn't think about it until you really think about it. Um, and as I went on trying to kind of focus where I wanted to research and what would be interesting and um, uh, sort of feasible um, and, and kind of to feed off what was already, um, what already existed uh, in terms of research and discussion on the topic. I realised that actually taking it from a historical point of view, coming in 
coming into the 20th century from the other other side of it uh, would be would be the place that I wanted to be. Um, and a lot of the research had been um, looking at uh, separate tie-on pockets, which were from uh, earlier than the time frame I looked at. I was looking at the uh, 1880s to the 1920s. And a lot of it was from the previous century. So I realised that there was a slight um, uh, gap in kind of in my knowledge that I thought I would like to be able to fill. And then what sort of critical intervention did you make? How did you engage with your subject in terms of your research? Well, I kind of approached it from um, working out what I wanted to know about it um, in terms of what, whether my ideas of, uh, of women's pockets in the time frame were correct, essentially. Because um, you kind of start with a fixed view. And of course, I was coming with my own contemporary view um, and my own experience. So I kind of wanted to make sure that whether I uh, make sure that I wasn't assuming anything um, and find out if women did have pockets, um, did they, uh, because I was looking at integral pockets by this point, um, and to find out if they did have them, did they have enough? Because I'd uh, read things about men's men having the opposite problem where they would have too many pockets and couldn't find anything, and women would not have enough pockets so couldn't find anything because they would all be in a bag. Um, so I kind of wanted to look at it from that from that point of view. Did you discover that certain sorts of garments were more likely to have pockets than others? I mean, for instance, um, did, for instance, sportswear, women's sportswear, um, because women are becoming more active in the late 19th century, were sportswear garments more likely to have pockets than perhaps an evening dress? Um, yes, I think sportswear would. Um, I had... One of the things I was... Uh, I originally looked at and ultimately didn't use in my research because it, it turned out not to be very fruitful, but was useful to kind of discover, was that I'd come across the concept of um, of a suffragette jacket, which was um, uh, a kind of Edwardian-shaped jacket with the kind of belt and multiple pockets on it. And I wanted to find out if it was real or if I'd imagined it or if I'd misinterpreted something um, that I'd, I'd read about previously. Um, so I kind of made the hunt for that. And they they definitely, that, that was a style of jacket that was around. Um, although the, the concept of a suffragette jacket, I couldn't really sort of pin down. Um, but it definitely seemed that once the, um, once we'd hit the turn of the, the 20th century, uh, jackets seemed to be the way to go. But um, actually bustles were the place that they would usually be because you could conceal all sorts of things in there um, because we were coming out of the, the long column uh, classical dresses of the, the early 19th century. Um, and then as the, the skirts got wider and wider, um, then you could sort of fit fit more things underneath it. But um, there was a, always a problem of, of things kind of changing how skirts moved and how they hung. And if you put too many things in your pockets, it would warp the shape. But bustles were the, were the place to hide things. So ladies were, were constantly, if, if um, the newspaper articles are to be, be believed, rummaging around in the backs of their skirts and sort of shimmying things around. Um, very much like sort of having to dump the contents of one's handbag out to find your train ticket at the last moment. And how did you balance what your descriptions of it is ver are very evocative, they're very spatial, um, yeah. they're very much someone who knows how to make something, you know, who understands the structure. You refer to structural elements, spatial elements, voids, etc. Um, so it's obviously, uh, in a way, you're 
your very um, specialist way in to looking at this period in in history. How did you kind of balance that with a more um, critical and indeed politicised, you know, the idea of property, the idea of of carrying property um, and and women's independence that is is so entwined with this idea of of um, of carrying uh, goods in any in any way. Um, so how did you balance those two sort of parts of yourself, so to speak, for this for this project? And um, I found that as I was researching it, because I was the kind of the the making side and the the construction side is so sort of um in my brain if that makes sense but it's not it's not, it wasn't any any time at any point at the foreground of the research that I was doing so I think I hadn't even um that's really interesting that you picked up on that I think I hadn't really noticed that I that I um was kind of focusing on that in a kind of conscious sense but it did mean that when I was reading about people's experiences, women's experiences of trying to find things in their pockets and where they would be placed in a garment, um, I could understand very easily from reading how it would work and how it would affect construction um, without having to think about it because that's just you know, how, how I can read things. Um, so I kind of was doing that subconsciously. So it, it worked quite well, I think, because I could just then focus on approaching things from the... Um, sort of the, the, the political side or the uh, sort of the theoretical side. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of tried to, didn't even need to try, just kind of forgot that that was, that was just sort of a background refreshing, I think. Because it is one of the areas, isn't it, that, you know, lots of women didn't have private spaces. They didn't have private spaces to live. They didn't have private spaces in terms of maybe even a cupboard. So the one th- space I imagine is if you have, items that are precious, not necessarily monetarily precious, but are emotionally precious, is that you carry them close to your body. Yes, absolutely. That's that's something that kept on coming up in my research and it, it was sort of throughout the time period and and, um, and from before the, the era that I was looking at as well, about the kind of the changing... And um, one of the things I was looking at was the women's changing property rights um, and the way that this impacted how women owned things and what women owned... And and it did alter slightly how, how things were carried and how things were cared for. But I found it so interesting, the kind of the breakdown between what was important and what's valuable, but what would not be valuable to somebody else. So I was looking at the difference between secrecy and security and privacy and sort of what that would, um, what that would mean to the individual and why they would then want to keep something safe. And, and you're right, it is keeping it, um, sort of about your person because you you always know where it is that way um, and I think pickpockets featured in every every chapter of my dissertation <laughs> in some form or another. I wonder if you could tell us if you know what came out of the research did you draw any conclusions did you have any sort of unexpected findings what what came out of it? Um, I think the main thing that I kind of took from it was that um, the use of integral pockets was um, quite widespread, um, conceivably more than is today. But there were definitely the kind of the parallels between pockets that turn out not to be real or, you know, the, a kind of a bit of embroidery or, or something like that. Um, but the, the, the kind of the issues that were raised were the same as they are today. Um, so not being able to find things because you've got them all in, in one handbag or in one, one giant pocket. 
Um, and uh, uh, it's kind of the interesting um, listening to or reading the, the, the accounts of people's everyday experiences. And they were just so, so similar to accounts that you might read about someone looking for a train ticket today or standing waiting waiting for the person in front of you in the queue to look for their train ticket or things like that and it was kind of it really kind of highlighted that you know the the things change and things stay the same and I really enjoyed that kind of finding all the little kind of like oh yeah I completely appreciate that moments um uh, throughout the research and and just some of the things that would appear in in newspaper articles about it I love the the sort of return of the compartmentalization of things, you know, and you see, I mean, of course, most typically, you know, for, for the phone, you know, for the iPhone. Um, but I noticed Fendi had brought back the shuttle N the other day. Um, and and kind of the idea of, of what you were saying, you know, the tie-on pocket, you know, the tie-on accessory um, that also has made such a such a kind of poetic return, you know, of tying on um, different different pockets for different pieces of um, yeah. of technology, um, if not, you know, um, you know, cosmetics, etc. Interestingly, and I, as we were just speaking a moment ago, I realised when we were talking about tie on pockets that I um, I kind of wear one for work because actually most of my uh, most of my my work involves um, working in live theatre and I'm often dressing so we all wear um, pouches with lots of different compartments in them <laughs> uh, so it's kind of brought the two the two worlds together I've you know I, I actually use the thing that I researched um, for, for this this degree for the the job that I do that led on from the previous one um, so I kind of I, I only it I, I was surprised how long it took me to make the link between my dressing pouch that I wear every day and has all of my precious things in it most of which are not useful for the show that I'm doing at all it's got you know it's got a shoehorn in it and lots of safety pins and things like that but it's also got like hand cream and a lip balm and some sweets and uh, <laughs> and a crossword book and a pen and you know um but the, but I have to have them with me so it's kind of interesting the things that we choose to carry um and the little kind of bits and bobs that we collect I've got sort of beads that have fallen off costumes in shows that I worked on ages ago and I've got a little model plastic Doctor Who that I don't remember where it came from, but it just lives in there. I can't get rid of it now. <laughs> so kind of the, the the interesting things that we that we carry is kind of uh, where we where I've ended up. But yeah, I definitely definitely would like to learn more. Ayana Masuno is also fascinated by the strategies that fashion curators employ to communicate ideas, narratives, and notions of identity, both of the self and in terms of a national identity within exhibitions. Her critique arises from the observation that given that fashion is a predominantly Western phenomena, whilst Japan has exerted profound influence upon Western fashion, how do Japanese people relate to Japanese fashion exhibited in museums in Japan? She draws upon the international exhibitions to highlight historical links between dress collections, exhibiting fashion, and perceptions of national identities. We asked Ayana about the premise of her project and the methodologies she employed to develop her written thesis for her MA in Fashion Cultures and Histories. My name is Ayana and I'm from Japan and 
I was born and raised and educated in Japan before I start my master's degree. And I've always realized the role position of fashion in the country, in my home country, especially in academia and museum. So that is why I came to study in the UK and take master's degree there. And as a student, I study fashion in the UK, but also understanding the context of Japanese culture. I always feel like why, like I, I was realized that what is called Japanese fashion in global context, but also I, I, I knew the role status of fashion in Japan. So I always feel this struggle and I wanted to explore this unequal situation in my project. I wanted to explore the possibility of improvement of Japanese fashion in, in museum context. That is one of the reasons I chose this particular topic. What is it about your project where you felt that there was a need for change? And in your case, I think it was change of perception, wasn't it? As well as change of a kind of uh, curatorial practice. Could you tell us about that desire for, for a change? I've, I really feel like there is a cultural hierarchy between the concept coming from coming from West to Japan, brought from West. So Japanese people, especially in academia and museums, tend to focus on Japanese tradition, not something coming from West. Uh, but I really feel I love fashion and I know there are many people love fashion in the country and also more Japanese designers are accepted in global Western, a uh, global fashion. So I really wanted to improve the status of fashion in this country. What I found exciting about your proposal, because I really did think it was interesting, um, was that quite often curators look at, um, you know, what happens in the museum and they do consider their audience. But what I thought was wonderfully provocative about your thesis was that you said you felt very strongly that you wanted Japanese people, it was their perception that mattered to you. It wasn't other people's perception, it was Japanese people's perception. And I thought that was fascinating. I wonder if you might say a little bit more about that. Well, because I feel like there is a gap between how how foreign people regard Japanese fashion and Japanese people regard Japanese fashion. I strongly feel it in the discussion around kimono. In the Western context, kimono is often talked in the perspective from fashion. I mean, kimono has fashion or kimono's influence on fashion, Western fashion, something like that. But Japanese people, I found more Japanese arguments do not include kimono and fashion alongside, but kimono, they often think kimono is on more higher status and something has more cultural value. That is why I chose to approach this topic from both perspective, Japan and the West. There were three main things I did. For one is textual analysis. I read both texts in Japanese and English. 
And the second is I did exhibition reviews, also approaches to the exhibition took place in Japan and the West. And the third uh, third way was I did interview with both Japanese calculators and the calculators in the US. What is considered as Japanese fashion today is kind of synonym to Tokyo fashion. They really talk about Tokyo always. So I think we could more talk about the fashion from small region or countryside. I find it's kind of difficult because it is often related to craft or traditional garments rather than fashion. But I think it is it could be an alternative way to found another concept of Japanese fashion. For her final MA fashion journalism project, Daisy Cooper produced every stage of a magazine called Erdkin. With travel curtailed due to the pandemic, she looked around and found inspiration in the natural world and folklore as a subversive culture that challenges many societal norms. Erdkin is a highly imaginative, beautifully illustrated magazine with clever editorials, an interview with Simon Coston and edgy photography. It's a considerable and timely achievement, which we'll hope to enter, influence and inspire readers in the public domain. We asked Daisy about what she studied before joining the course and the ideas and rationale underpinning her magazine. Before, I actually studied politics in Nottingham. Uh, So it was a bit of a change coming and doing fashion journalism. Um, But I kind of was always interested in fashion, interested in culture. And for my, even for my undergraduate dissertation, I did a a thesis on um, fashion and feminism, even though I was doing a politics degree. So it was always kind of something I was interested in doing. Um, And then I saw the fashion journalism course and, yeah, it kind of seemed like a a really good fit. Could you please tell us what form um, your research took? What what medium did you use to communicate? So I I produced a magazine called Erdkind um, and it was all about how we can creatively and spiritually reconnect with nature and folklore, um, particularly in the UK as well. So it kind of focused on UK-based creators, um, creatives, designers, artists who are kind of connecting with folklore and nature in a spiritual way. And maybe define, you know, what you're meaning when you say folklore, because I'm not sure everyone will understand. Yeah, like I said, so yeah, when I I kind of was deciding the topic, I was in the countryside. Um, I kind of wasn't really in a city situation. I was trying to come up with a a topic and um, I kind of wanted to do something that was about creatively connecting with nature in a way but I was kind of looking around at what there was already and anything that was sort of sustainability focused really felt like it was kind of peddling almost like a middle class minimalist sort of message if you know what I mean. Um, So when I was doing my research into connecting with nature, especially in the UK, I kind of came across paganism and folklore, which are kind of things that I've always known are there and they always feel omnipresent, but they aren't 
almost things that feel like we associate them with Britishness in the kind of cultural imagination, if you know what I mean. So um, I started just researching into paganism and folklore a lot more and got really, really interested in it. And the more that I actually researched into that, the more I started to identify almost like a community that existed that I didn't really know I didn't really, um, I hadn't really noticed before. So I, I uh, discovered like Simon Costin and all the work he's doing with um, the Museum of British Folklore. And um, from then, because he did a, a, a festival that was actually quite local to me in Kent, in Dover, called Waking the Giant. And I think it was, I think it was actually early 2020 before the lockdown. So I literally just missed it, which was, really annoying because it would have been really great to go to but it was in Fort Burgoyne which is in Dover and uh, it was a celebration of lost craft and local enterprise um I, I was researching that and from there I found all of these local artists and makers and people who were engaged in folklore and connecting with nature creatively or spiritually and so it kind of became a bit of a, a spider's web from there really kind of I found Robert George Sanders who is also local who I interviewed in the magazine, um, who was at the festival. Um, and yeah, basically the, the magazine really evolved into becoming a bit of a celebration um, of these people who are connecting with folklore and a celebration of the community in a way. And um, why did you choose that form, that, that particular format over, for example, a dissertation? Because obviously... Um, you, you know, you have experience in writing and research and and sort of rhetoric, you know, coming from, from politics. So so why a magazine? Um, I think um, selfishly I wanted to do something creative, but also I think it was about bringing these subjects which often do just sit in history books or, um, you know, in dissertations, theses and things, but trying to bring it to um, a younger generation and also address the community that it's kind of speaking to as well. Um, and I think because the subject matter is about creatively connecting with nature and physically doing things and going out and experiencing nature and being inspired by it, I thought that a magazine um, would be the best, best medium to do that. And I did contemplate doing a digital magazine, but I thought that because the the subject matters in the way and the way that I wanted to communicate it so the first issue deals with um so there's there's eight pagan festivals in the wheel of the year so that's the the pagan the pagan calendar of the year so there's kind of like four spring summer festivals and four autumn winter festivals so I thought it would be a really good idea to do a biannual magazine so that one could address these spring summer and one could address these autumn winter and then in a way it it alludes to you know the traditional fashion calendar or the traditional or we've got a spring summer issue an autumn winter issue but I thought a print print version doing that would be really nice because it has a finality to it um and you can really explore either the waxing or the waning year within that kind of final format um and I like I liked the fact that with print um there definitely is an ending so you can definitely just explore what you want to within that but then more than that I suppose as well um with print it also really um complemented the subject matter with tactility and um 
yeah, just having something that you can hold and almost magazine as objects and like an archival quality as well. That's, that's what I really wanted to have. Could you please explain um, the contents of your magazine, the subjects you covered, the, the creative aspects, the visual aspects? Yeah, sure. So um, there were actually different elements of the magazine, different um, editorial components. So um, I did a lot of interviews. I thought that was a really important um, form for the magazine to take, to be really interview based. Um, so one of the most important interviews, I would say, was I went on a journey with this um, storytelling performance artist, I would call him, called Robert George Sanders. Um, and he's so many things. He's a performance artist. He uses fashion as his medium of expression. Um, he was a designer. He studied design at, at St. Martin's. Um, and he's also a drawing teacher. He does all of these things, but he's got a really deep connection to nature and where he's from in Kent as well. So he was local, which was really good. Um, so we visited him in his home in Hoth, which is a really small village, really historic village in the countryside in Kent. And um, we basically follow him as he and interview him along the way, but we follow him and help him forage for art. Um, and while we're kind of taking this journey through through Hoth, he's describing all of the folklore around his home in Hoth. Um, and he's talking about his work. He's talking about um, how, you know, his connection from childhood spiritually and creatively to nature kind of has shaped everything that he's done. And it was a really, really lovely day. Um, we ended up in Reculver Towers, which is right on the coast in Kent. Um, and yeah, that was a really, really great interview. Um, and then we also, I also interviewed um, Zakia Sewell, which was, I thought was a really important part in the magazine. I presented it as an oral history, um, but um, she is a, a DJ who is really into folk music. Um, and she recently did a um, BBC4 radio series called My Albion. Um, and the series was all about how she has always felt a really deep connection to folk music and as a result kind of British folk culture but because she's been so connected to that she has um, always sort of questioned as well whether things like that could really belong to her because she's a, a woman of mixed heritage so she's kind of the series started from a point of her questioning whether all these folk British folk symbols can belong to her as a woman who is um, who has Caribbean heritage, and it's kind of discussing those um, those issues throughout. You came from a political background, a political studies background, and you said that you you'd work, you know, you'd studied feminism, and it seems that your choices are determined by um, a political engagement with society, with lives lived. Is that the way that you also see that's where your future communication is going to lie? Or your passion well, lies? Well, I think everything of value is political, really. I felt the need to address um, political issues within the project itself of um, class, of race, of kind of British cultural history and how we view it and the stories that we tell about it. Um, but also, um, I feel like folklore as a subject 
is a radical thing. I mean, originally it was an oral tradition, people to share cultures, people to share customs, stories, songs and that kind of thing. Um, um, but yeah, it was grown from the people, by the people, and it's always been a really anti-hierarchical thing. And it's something that hasn't ever um, really subscribed to, you know, a, a rationalist view of the world. And it's always changing, it's always moving, and you can't really define it, which is what really attracted me to it. And in a way, I thought, yeah, it is political, but it's also, yeah, it's very radical. Um, and I think, yes, that, that's something that I would want to carry on um, in, in all my work. But, um, yeah, I think that was really something that was really important to explore in the project. Thanks to Jessica Fletcher, Ayana Mazzorno and Daisy Cooper for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Alexandra Szymanska with sound design by Wilf Petherbridge and featuring AWW by Mermaid Chunky. <laughs>